Welcome back to Cangria, home of Canada's Queer Media. My name is Luke Smith, and Sebastian is on the phone to his doctor, so he's not able to join us, um, but hopefully he'll be back for the rest of the episode. Uh, I imagine it's just scheduling, making things happen. Everybody knows what it's like to talk to doctors these days. They're very busy people. With that being said, I'm not going to be talking to my next self for the next 15 minutes. I'm actually very excited to be chatting with Matt Allen, who is the Chief Innovation Officer at the Professional Golfers Association of Canada. But stay your beating hearts. We're not here talking about golf. We're actually talking about inclusion in sport because uh, Matt was also one of the founding members of the Sport Inclusion Task Force. Now, I found out about the task force through the Olympic Committee. We've been in chats with them about other LGBT uh, initiatives that they do. So, Matt, welcome. And uh, how are you enjoying the day so far? Well, thank you so much for having me, Luke. It's uh, a heat wave here in Ontario, so I am not going to uh, to say that I'm too hot because it uh, feels like a nice change. So I'm doing well and, and happy to be here today. Wonderful. Now, you helped to found the LGBTQ... I, I 2s plus um, sports inclusion task force. Um, it's worth noting to folks, we spoke a couple of weeks ago about how, you know, the acronym grows or shrinks depending yeah. on, on, on who's, uh, who's doing it. Um, but what inspired you to found this particular task force? It's a great question, Luke. So where we started was actually, it, it, this journey really started six years ago. Uh, there was a summit at Pride House with the 2015 Toronto Pan Am Games. And the summit was a three-day summit with, uh, with delegates from literally around the world. I believe there was eight different countries represented. And the focus over those three days was 100% on how to make sport more safe for LGBTQ I2S athletes and coaches and officials. Uh, so out of that, uh, those three days, which were, you know, I reflect back on that. I was struggling at the time with my own sexual orientation and, and identifying my role in sport. And I was fortunate enough that my employer at the time, which is still the PGA of Canada, allowed me to go to this event and to kind of navigate what this could look like for me and what it could look like for our organization. So out of that, we, uh, myself and a few of our co-founding members identified a pretty significant gap. And, and remember, this is six years ago, and, and the sport landscape did look quite different six years ago than it even looks like today. But what we learned was there was no avenue, no platform for organizations in the Canadian sports system who do want to make sport more inclusive, more welcoming, and safer for LGBTQ athletes and coaches. So what we committed to as a, as a small group, I believe it was three of us uh, from that initial summit that said, you know, we need to carry this on. There needs to be a legacy out of Pride House, Toronto 2015, and, and we were committed to that. So that's really where our foundation started. It was, uh, it was very honest and, and earnest in, in that situation of, you know, we just authentically believed that there was a significant gap and wanted to make a commitment to moving that forward. I'm glad you mentioned the Pride House because, you know, what jumps out at me is that the Canadian Olympic Committee and, and the Canadian athletes and those who are attending uh, the, the Olympics uh, representing Canada, you know, the, you folks have really 
led the way internationally in terms of uh, creating spaces that are more welcoming and, and, and safer for uh, LGBT plus folks who are in sport. And the Canadian Pride House is uh, very often a, a destination uh, where other Olympians uh, from countries, you know, try and uh, try and get to visit. Um, so it's it's always a, a a moment of pride knowing that Canada is not only representing itself and its its prowess in these sports, but it's also representing the the ethos and the, the welcoming and safe. Uh, the safety of what it means to be in Canada when competing internationally. So it's it's an incredibly proud moment as a as a queer person in Canada to to see that. Um, and yeah, I mean it's it's interesting you're saying that you know we're talking about five years ago to today and and how things have have changed. But I do believe a lot of that is actually reflective of the the significant amount of work that this organization and others such as EGAL Canada have really been doing over the past five years. You know, do you think that that's been, that this, this change to making some of these sports organizations that much more welcoming, that much more safe, you know, do you think that's been a lot of the work over the last five years? Absolutely, Luke. I mean, you know, we, we were intentionally under the radar, I would say for our first four or five years until we, we went public um, over the last month. And that was very intentional because we, we knew that we needed to be realistic because we started out with myself and three, I believe it was three others that started in 2015, but it, we all had our full-time jobs. This was a, a passion project for us, something that we saw that was important, but respectfully it, it sat on the side of each of our desks and that's not to diminish the work, but it's, it's a reality of where it stood. And we knew that was also a reality for other organizations who wanted to prioritize this work, but didn't have designated staff, didn't have designated tools or resources or expertise to go to, to, to develop a framework, to make their organization more inclusive. So what we did over the first few years was, first of all, opened our task force to anybody who wanted to be involved. So. The task force today looks very different than where we started in at Pride House. And what we did was worked with some individual clients. So I look back at our first few organizations that we worked with, which includes State Canada, Gymnastics Canada, and Softball Canada, three national level organizations who jumped on the opportunity to work with us uh, in a one-on-one -on -one, uh, environment. And and we learned through that process as well. So we learned what the challenges, what the barriers would be and put together a process. So out of that, we came with a toolkit. We came with a process, a framework where we could go to other organizations now and say, here's, how, here's our, our tools of what we can provide to you as an organization. So absolutely, to answer your question, you know, we spent a few years really digging into what this could look like. And that's where we are today of where we felt confident enough in going public with Sport Inclusion Task Force and saying to the Canadian sports system that we're ready to take you on. And if you, you know, dig into our site, you can see the different services and tools that we can provide to organizations depending on where they are in that journey. Yeah, and, and it, it jumps out at me that I was kind of surprised, like you mentioned, you know, sort of emerged over the last month or so, almost like a, a caterpillar from the, the, the chrysalis. 
And, uh, you know, I'm looking at it and under your resources, you've got the Athlete Ally Program, the Coaching Association of Canada Safe Sports uh, Training Program, EGAL uh, has a couple of their training programs in there. So if I'm a um, small town soccer league and, you know, I've identified this as something I need to need to improve on. One look at your website, it's the second tab over and there's already these these specific trainings bit of a tongue twister there specific trainings that will you know help those small emerging organizations you know now that you've gathered a lot of this training into one place um how are you seeing the uptake from across the across the country absolutely it's uh, it's been a, a pretty crazy month in in a great way because the splash and the launch has been bigger than we anticipated and I want to pick up, Luke, on what you just mentioned there. That was our exact intent with this, with going public and, and with this website, is for smaller organizations, even larger organizations. We, we are seeing national, provincial, local organizations finally, and I will say finally, prioritizing and making meaningful change to make sport more inclusive, but they don't know where to start. And that was one of the biggest gaps is, okay, we want to we want to make change we want to be supportive to the lgbtq community but where do i begin there's just so much and i don't i don't even know what the acronym means you know we talked about that at the onset so where do i begin there was no central hub to go and and certainly there are many uh, sites that you can go on for american system but i think what we identified is american sport and canadian sport sure there are similarities but they're drastically different in many ways and our cultures are drastically different in many ways and we needed something for a canadian sport uh, system to go to and say okay here's and i mean if you actually navigate deeper into the website if you want to go on and you're focused on uh on trans uh, transgender policy or inclusion policy or uh, allyship, you can find that. And what our intent is over is to launch new uh, new resources every week. So we've actually got a hub, Luke, of about a hundred pieces that we'll be posting each week. We didn't want to inundate people right away, but our intent is each week to develop something new, launch something new that's both our own or existing resources that are out there. You see some pieces on there from via sport in BC, all the way up to sport north uh, within the territories and, and in Ontario and beyond. So we wanted that to be the central hub for Canadian sport. I'm glad that you mentioned the, the Americans here because I think, although it's certainly like I mentioned earlier with Pride House, you know, Canada is certainly leading the, the world in, or amongst the leaders in the world when it comes to accessible sport. I think the, the United States is almost leading the world in, in inaccessibility for the LGBT community. And I say that because uh, our show monitors the queer news. It's part of what we do. And normally we talk about Canadian things, but we have been watching and I think that there's there are around a dozen U.S. states now um, where it is now illegal for a trans person to to participate in sport, which is truly ridiculous. Um, it may be slightly less than a dozen, and in some of them, they even require you know official warning signs if a trans person is entering a washroom, you know, which is in incredibly intrusive. 
So in the United States, we're seeing this major push from the Republicans um, against uh, trans participation in sport. There was a, a famous example from last month where uh, a state was was trying to prevent trans participation, and uh, yet they couldn't identify a single trans person who was participating. Um, so it's it's just a policy as as part of this counterculture argument. Um, are you seeing some of that bleeding through into Canada? This sort of pushback against trans participation and and how are you how are you helping trans athletes and trans sports folks navigating that because we're not immune to that that rhetoric coming out of these uh, right-wing states i think you just nailed it right there with we're not immune to it luke i think you know one of the biggest differences differences i see within the american system and canadian system is they're more blatant with with their views and policies and perspectives. And I think sometimes what I'm seeing, particularly now with many organizations and many sport leaders is a bit of naiveness of what the reality is, specific on trans policies and trans inclusion. Uh, so it is out there. And what we need to be aware of is that it is out there and maybe it's not as public as it is in the States, but we need to be aware of the policies that are in so I was working with an organization quite recently where their latest update on their trans inclusion policy was from 1998. The world is, uh, is a little different and, and we need to rely on the facts and the science behind trans inclusion rather than emotions. And I think that's emotions and, and beliefs, which is largely what, uh, what is happening in the States. We're making some strides, but we absolutely need to be better and we need to put it at the forefront to make sure that we are being welcoming to all organizations. And there's no question that there are some organizations in Canada that are absolutely leading the way. And guess what? They're the, the beliefs of what this would do by in, including uh, making the policy more open than the traditional model, it hasn't been broken. In fact, those sports are thriving and those sports, I'm not gonna name them, but those sports are sports that uh, are seeing participation numbers increase dramatically compared to some other organizations that are sticking to their traditional policies and, and beliefs. I mean, I think it's interesting you say that. We, we were very disappointed uh, to see um, somewhat recently that uh, the World Rugby, I think it was the World Rugby Federation, I'm not sure exactly what their, their foretelling it was, um, came out against trans participation in 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 their highest uh, levels, um, uh, which which astonished me because I growing up in Wales, I mean it, it's a home of rugby, like that was the the sport du jour of of uh, of what we grew up. Rugby is to Wales what hockey is to Canada. You know what I mean? It, it is very much the bread and butter. And um, but growing up, I never quite felt that the all male rugby teams were the sort of safe spaces where I would want to participate. And I think that uh, gay folks in particular, because that's what I can speak to, generally we try to stick to, if we are going to engage in sports, we're in the gay rugby team. And uh, there's an amazing tournament and, and group where, you know, we're in the, the gay swim team or the gay soccer team. And, and, you know, we tend to stick together for safety and, and not really join with the rest of the, the big, big bad world. Um, but I think there's certainly a push, and I think that's part of the work you're doing to, to make it so that these organizations are safe 
for young queer folks to, to feel that they can join and not have to segregate into just a, a, the, the one-off gay league that might, uh, that might exist. Absolutely, and, and I have to put a, a big shout out to Rugby Canada. Uh, there is, uh, I've got two friends that work in that, uh, in that organization and they've been absolutely fantastic. They have taken a stance, they have leaned on us for some feedback and, and sent some verbiage to us for feedback. So they've really used exactly what we were hoping our, our role would be within the Canadian sports system to support them. But, uh, you know, I think it, it speaks a lot to where we're going and the fact that a, a national sport organization is making a statement contrary to their international body, I think is, that's a risky move. People don't always, appreciate or understand the impact that that can have by opposing something that your international body is saying and, and believing. So they've absolutely been leaders within this space and, and have made it very clear where their position is as an organization within Canada. And I fully believe that they will bring that voice to the global room as well. Diving down sort of, you know, out of the international speed, uh, field and, and even out of the, the, the national field, how do you think that this work has impacted the locker rooms? I'm, I'm talking individual communities, individual sports. Do you think that sport in Canada is now somewhat more accessible and, and, and welcoming than it was five years ago? Slowly, Luke, it's it's getting there. I think what's happening on a large scale in the world, what's happening in Canada right now over the last month um, with what happened in London, Ontario, what happened in Kamloops, I think people are people who are in a world of privilege are more understanding to what is happening and the impacts of words in the locker room. I think that will start to trickle down more into sport, you know, I heard many cases in the last week of people really reflecting on saying, I let this happen by not saying anything, by not voicing my issue with that word that you used or that behavior. People are understanding the impact that they have and what allyship can mean and should mean. It's a verb, it's an action, being an ally. So I think it's starting to get there. I think we need to educate our coaches, educate our athletes on the importance of language and and there needs to be repercussions Luke, to, to the locker room and when these words are used, because as you mentioned, you know, I think one of the big reasons that gay sport are so prominent in, in bigger centers is because it's safe and because they don't have to deal with that language. For me, as when I was an athlete and even still as a coach, it's those microaggressions and those small they might seem small, but they have a, a major impact for somebody in the locker room. So we will get there. I think we, it is absolutely better than it was five years ago. Are we where we need to be currently? No. But I think that the way that the world's going right now, and specifically in Canada, I have, I have some faith and I have some optimism that the sports system will, will start to catch up. Because if we don't evolve, if we don't change, then sport, I believe, is going to start to become obsolete. I mean, that's a, that's a big, big vision. I think that now that we are rolling slowly, but, but surely out of this pandemic and more folks are looking at 
shifting some of the, uh, the, 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 the pandemic pounds um, and are looking at not just being more active for the sake of health, but, you know, I think I very briefly was in a, in a, in a gay soccer team and it was that sense of camaraderie, that sense of community that brought me back each week, not necessarily running around and, and, and making my body exude liquids that was not particularly appealing but it's that camaraderie and that uh, that community sense that i think is so vital to being a part of what sport is and what sport does and i think that having been cocooned for the past 18 months more and more canadians are going to be really looking for that so it's encouraging to see that uh, the sport inclusion task force is helping to make sports across the country more accessible and more welcoming and uh, i want to thank you for your work on that how can people reach out, get in touch, get this training on allyship or, you know, how do they figure out trans folks in their league? And, you know, how do they how do they navigate this forward so that anyone can can participate and, and be involved? Yeah, there's, you know, the opportunities are endless. And I think that's our intent is whether you're you're one of the largest national organizations in the country or whether you're a local soccer or football club that wants to take some strides, what we have committed to is not being cookie cutter. So understanding what your needs are, what you need as an organization, what your community needs, where you are as an organization or as a team, and developing the tools and resources that are available for you or what we can create for you as well. So within our task force, we have a hub of whether you're ready for consultant and policy work or whether you want to have an athlete that's in your sport, you know, we've got a pool of athletes, national level athletes, club level athletes, provincial level athletes that can come and talk about their experiences because I believe that we believe there's, there's power in telling stories. And, and for me, that was very important is to resonate with people who identify as I do, because I didn't have that as a kid. And I think that's what we need to do better at. So anybody out there listening who's interested is go to sportinclusion.ca and we have a hub of resources there we have a list of speakers and consultants so if you're looking for somebody to come probably virtually for the next little while hopefully that ends soon but we've got people that we can uh, we can equip you with to come speak to your athletes to your boards uh, and we also have a contact us page so if you're interested in getting involved We've got a page right there that you, we can bring you into our monthly uh, monthly circle of meetings and um, you can reach out and we can have a one-on-one -on -one dialogue on how we can best support you. Excellent. Thank you so much, Matt. And just again, folks, that is sportinclusion, all one word, .ca. And uh, yeah, go check it out and, and see what you can do. I want to thank you again, Matt, so much for joining us uh, today. And uh, we'll be back just after this next song. Disaffected scrolling through Artificial filtered views No more cloying platitudes Will you ever live a life you choose? Growing up and buying in You saw the trap and still fell in Play it right, you just might win Can you be someone you never been? 
Welcome to Cancre, a home of Canada's queer media. My name is Luke Smith. And I'm Sebastian. And uh, very excited about uh, today's talk, the, the, the second interview we have lined up. Earlier, we were talking to Matt with uh, the uh, about uh, sport and inclusion. Um, but Seb, you've been casting your eyes on a documentary and we actually are joined by the director. So I'm going to yes. hand it over to you to, to introduce. And uh, later on, I want to talk about uh, why this is so important in terms of the story of David Gomez uh, in Toronto over the last week. So we'll touch on that in, in near the end of the interview. But uh, at this point, take it away, Seb. Uh, well, actually, um, Paul, why don't you introduce the movie? I mean, I watched it, but... It's your baby, so <laughs> tell us about it. <laughs> okay, well, it's called Standing on the Line. It's uh, on nfb.ca, and it's streaming for free. Just go to the website and click. Um, it's about uh, a homophobia in sports. So I made this documentary by following three uh, elite uh, athletes who came out and their struggles. Mm -hmm. um, and I guess other than documenting the suffering and the struggles that these people went through. I also wanted to show some shine a light on possible uh, paths for change. And that's why I also filmed in a high school, a very progressive high school in New Brunswick, in Moncton, New Brunswick. Mm -hmm. um, and um, just kind of see how they were doing things there differently and why, um, for example, the football team had a, a young assistant coach and a, and a, a high school you know, player openly bisexual. How does that happen? Well, it doesn't happen by chance. It's because they felt comfortable coming out. So that, that is, uh, that's kind of in the nutshell, uh, the, film that, uh, the film that I made. Mm -hmm. I watched uh, almost all of it. I didn't quite have time to finish. I'm going to admit that the number one thing that was distracting for me is it's been a long time since I've heard the Franco-Acadian accent. <laughs> it's so fascinating. Anyway, um, so uh, what what brought you to to choose this topic as a as a filmmaker? Well, um, okay. So as a gay man, I you know if you're going to make this this film tip took five years to make. Um, and wow. if you're gonna spend that much time and energy, you better pick a topic that's like close to your heart. Right. And yes. there's kind of nothing closer to my heart than my sexual identity because it colors everything that I am really. Um, and uh, so um, I wanted to go into where is it in Canada where there's still like really a problem with homophobia and where you know LGBT people are not safe. And mm -hmm. unfortunately, the world of sports is still that place. Mm -hmm. And so that was kind of where I went at it. I'm not a big sports person, but I'll tell you one thing by following these three elite athletes, um, you know, Olympians, professional athletes, um, I have gained uh, an appreciation for athletes because really the perseverance that they go through, their determination, it's kind of like filmmaking actually. You know? Okay. <laughs> you need to be really stubborn. And uh, yeah, I really, I really enjoyed meeting these, these people. So in general, like uh, uh, back in 2001, I think it was uh, when Mark Tewksbury became the first openly gay uh, Olympian, and he spoke openly at that time about how individual athletics is much easier to come out because he was a swimmer. 
Mm-hmm. And the three people that you followed, one was a, a speed skater, Olympic speed skater. Mm-hmm. Uh, watching her workout, by the way, I've always wondered how they ended up with such massive thighs. And I, <laughs> yeah. I, I do not envy her workout routine. Uh, there was a soccer player and a hockey player? Yes. Yes. So, the, yeah. And those are the, the, the team sports, and that's for the real challenging, because like even um, the speed skater in your film said that uh, most of her struggles were internal and that her team is a bit rocky, but broadly speaking, it was a lot easier than it was for the, the, the team athletes. It mm-hmm. seems, I mean, it's not fair to compare struggles, it, you, yeah. but it, it mm-hmm. did seem like a very different beast. Um, did the, the, the sort of contrast between individual athletics and, and team sports come up as you were interviewing people? Oh, yes, definitely. Um, yeah, I'm kind of with you on strug- comparing struggles because how do you quantify suffering? It can be crass, yeah. Um, but I think you can say generally there's something about uh, team sports and different team sports are kind of there. I think there are different levels in different team sports. I think mm-hmm. hockey is particularly difficult because um, there's such a, um, an emphasis on conformity and on uh, not rocking the boat, mm-hmm. on not causing a distraction. How many times have I heard the word distraction? Hey. Um, yeah. And, and coming out would, you know, in a, in a you know, a, a big league or even, I don't know, a major junior hockey league, coming out would have been seen by some, not all, but by some as a distraction. Um, so, you know, uh, yeah, definitely. When you talk to like Brock McGillis is the professional, uh, former professional hockey player that I interviewed in, in the film that I follow. Uh, mm-hmm. He was not NHL, by the way. And let me just parentheses, there has never been an NHL player ever to come out. And not Yeah, I was going to ask about that. The difference between like farm boy leagues and uh, the, the top leagues. Yeah. Yeah. Not only that, there's never been a former NHL player mm-hmm. ever. to. I think about that. How many thousands of men out there played for yeah. the NHL? Not one. And I know from my research that they're out there. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, you know, people have confirmed it to me. People who know, um, but th- it's just so difficult coming out. David Testo in the film, uh, who is a former uh, professional soccer player with the Montreal Impact and also the Vancouver Whitecaps before that, mm-hmm. uh, and also lives in Victoria now. By the way, David mm-hmm. Testo. Um, he, uh, you know, he illustrates very well why maybe you would think twice about coming out because he came out and never played again. Yes, yes. There, there's uh, many athletes out there for various profession sports who come out as they retire or after yeah. they retire. I think yeah. rugby is one of the few sports where people come out well, and still play. That's what I was going to mention. You know, I grew up in I grew up in Wales, and uh, as I mentioned in the interview with uh, with Matt, that was the you know, in Wales, rugby is to the Welsh what hockey is to Canadians. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because you mentioned that there seems to be this pressure of not rocking the boat in hockey. Whereas in Wales, you know, rugby was really seen as, you know, a man's man sport. It was really the peak of masculinity was, was being on the, the rugby team. And uh, yeah, there wasn't, there wasn't a huge amount of room uh, within that. 
So I'm kind of curious that in the Canadian context, it's the conformity that like you seem to spot as the, the bigger issue as opposed to maybe a, a toxic masculinity. I don't know if you want to dive oh, into that at all. Definitely toxic masculinity. <laughs> yeah, um, definitely toxic masculinity is, 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 uh, is that's it. Like I filmed in, in my film, there's a scene where Brock McGillis is talking to a group of uh, hockey players. It's the St. John Sea Dogs of the Quebec Major Junior Hockey League. So these are NHL prospects that he's talking to. And by the way, when I filmed that, that was the first time they had ever gotten to talk like that. That's, that was a first in the history of the league. Hmm. Um, and, um, you know, Brock was telling his story how people would say homophobic slurs on the ice all the time without thinking about it. And he'd go home and cry and drink and, and, and actually unfortunately had commit, uh, attempted suicide on a couple of occasions. Um, but afterwards, after talking to this group, um, one of the hockey players from the team who listened to this came up to me and said, I had no idea. I had no idea that what I said on the ice could have this impact, none. So I'm just gonna stop saying those things. And I'm thinking, wow, that was easy. You know, like really just stop saying homophobic slurs, even that minimum amount of behavior change can, would probably make a world of difference to a lot of gay hockey players and, and gay athletes. Actually, weirdly, I found the most heartbreaking part of his story was he said he became a goalie because at the end of every match, everyone hugs the goalie. Yeah. There was something, <laughs> the look on Liv's face. Oh, yeah. I was <laughs> muted, so you didn't hear my awe sound, but no. <laughs> Very sweet, yeah. Yeah, he says that too with his dad. His dad was, no, his, actually his dad is remembering. That's, yeah. Oh, when, that's right, yeah. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah. Um, so, I was kind of curious about how you managed to find athletes who are willing to speak on camera about this. Mm -hmm. In the case of Anastasia Busis, the Olympic speed skater, and of uh, Brock McGillis, the hockey player, they had already spoken publicly. Um, so it wasn't a huge stretch for them. I mean, when you're doing a documentary, you're asking for more than an interview. It's a commitment. Like I'm going to be in your life for a year or so, basically. Uh, yeah, <laughs> it's a commitment. Um, but uh, on the case of David Testo, uh, the former Montreal Impact uh, soccer player, David had 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 made a coming out. Did a coming out on uh, Radio Canada, actually on French television in Montreal. Huge splash when he came out. It was big, big news story. And then he faded away into nothing. Like you didn't hear of him, like whatever happened to David Testo. And that's why I went knocking on his door because I thought there, you know, the fact that he did this big coming out. And then his first reaction when I contacted him was, well, I did, I did my duty, you know, I did what I wanted to do. So like maybe young soccer players or young, you know, athletes, who are gay can hear this and know that they're not alone. But I, I did I did what I had to do. Mm. I managed to convince him to participate in the documentary, but it, it was not easy. Um, he was very resistant at first. And then <laughs> finally, I, I convinced him, I, because he's American, he uh, grew up in Asheville, North Carolina. 
And so I thought, I have to bring him back to North Carolina. I have to bring him back to his high school. I want to meet his mom. Um, so we did all that. But let me tell you, that trip was planned three times. And at the last minute, David was, for different excuses, uh, pulling out of it. And then, uh, then when we finally went and did it, and it's a very emotional scene in the film, uh, after the fil filming of it, he, he thanked me and then admitted that all of the times that he pulled out before uh, at the last minute was because he was emotionally afraid to do it. But now he's very, very thankful that he did it. He felt that it was a cathartic thing to do. It brought him, I think, possibly closer to his mom um, and also made him some peace with 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 the high school you know with his, with his, with past, his yeah. past yeah i have a so follow-up question i'd like to know about everyone who did not agree to come on because sure <laughs> he, he, oh i have a story <laughs> it's obviously because you know the respect for privacy so someone will we'll call them alex and you asked alex and they said no because well, can I tell you that I tried everything to get Michael Sam okay. in the film. Michael Sam is a uh, NFL player. And when he came out a few years ago, it was humongous news. And, you know, he ended up on Oprah. And, uh, and then again, here was a case of someone who had faded out of the limelight. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what, what happens after you come out and the light, light shone on you and um, so yeah, I, um, I did travel to New York to meet a friend of his and try to see if I could convince him it didn't work. Um, never got through to him. Um, who else? I, um, well, it's not so much about the who, but more about the why. The, the why. Yeah. Because I mean, it, it, it can be risky to come out. Like I'm, I'm willing to bet there may have been some people who are said, you know, there's the, anyone can play campaign and there's a lot of corporations and a lot of these sports teams who are very openly saying, you know, we'll accept you if you come out. Surely there are people out there who are saying, I like the messaging, but I'm not brave enough to be the first yet. Right. Um, I did there. I, at first, actually, it's a, it's kind of interesting. You bring this up. Mm. When I was conceiving the documentary, I was thinking it would be an interesting thing to do to follow someone who is the, about to come out mm. and follow him in the process of coming out publicly in the media. Mm. Because in documentary, um, it's compelling to follow someone in a process rather than have him or her reflect back kind of historically on something that happened to them in the past. Mm -hmm. So it's a more of a present, you know, being in the present moment thing. Unless you can look into some really convenient footage. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, there's always that. Um, so there were a couple of athletes that I had identified who were uh, about to come out. Um, and, you know, one of them was an 18 year old or 19 year old at the time uh olympic athletes actually uh and and then he he actually did come out um but you know documentary is not news it, it takes um we we're flexible but at that point 
I didn't have all the funding and all the everything I needed to do it. So of course I didn't feel like I could tell him, hey, uh, do you mind waiting until I get the funding before you come out? Like, <laughs> no, I'm not gonna do that. Right, right, yeah. So, yeah, so I mean, uh, who are, are there athletes who didn't feel comfortable? Yeah, there were, yes. Um, and why, I don't know if they really explained, you know, sometimes people just say no. Yeah. Um, just sort and, of the tangible anxiety of some. Yeah, yeah, there was definitely a couple, yeah, who, okay. who, uh, who said no. And, and, and the other thing is too, when I, I filmed in uh, the high school in Moncton, um, mm -hmm. you know, filming in a high school is no easy feat. Like it, it's difficult to get permission in the best of times to talk about the weather to kids. You need to get everybody's permission. and. And their parents' permission. So the school, like L'Ecole de l'Odyssée in Moncton, New Brunswick, they're so progressive and they believed in my project. Mm -hmm. So they sent out this like blanket, you know, um, uh, permission slip to all the parents and collected it. Like they did major work for me. Oh so God. I had the permission of every single student that, and there's a lot of them in this oh, documentary. Yeah. yeah. So it, it was a, a lot of work, but uh, what a what a great school, you know, hmm. what a great school. This this school has a principal who uh, was bullied as a child, and uh, when he noticed that there was bullying going on in school, he said, "No, I mean this is not happening. I'm, I'm, hmm. I'm not dealing. I'm not dealing with this." So he he put in all sorts of measures to reduce bullying, and and we know. You know, I know as a gay person, and and there are studies to bear this out that when like a very high percentage of bullying that happens is based on sexuality. Mm. One thing that Patrick Burke told me too is, and and I've heard this from other people, it's like as uh, so when you get like young hockey players that are really good and that are all all in these like elite leagues and go up the ladder and stuff they don't mix with other people. They're just in their bubble of hockey and they eat, drink, sleep hockey. They don't necessarily meet people from other, uh, with, uh, you know, other ethnicities, colors, religions. They might not hang out with the uh, kind of maybe more artsy crowd. Like, so they, they just don't, they just know one thing. And Patrick Burke was saying, if there's one thing I would change about hockey culture, it would be that. I would tell your son or daughter, go play the guitar, do something different other than hockey. And I think that's excellent advice. Well, or even just to be open, because I'm willing to bet that these people did meet a whole diversity of people. And then when they met them, they spoke about uh, hockey. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We, we arranged for our interview with yourself and the previous one with Matt before we knew this happened. Mm -hmm. And in fact, before this incident even took place. Mm -hmm. uh, in Toronto, down at the docks, I think it's Hanlon Point, there was a, a young gentleman, uh, David Gomez, I think. Uh, yeah, David Gomez, coming home from, the, from the, 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 this part of Toronto um, with a female friend of his. And they, they have a, a disagreement with a group of about five people. Um, it escalates, there's homophobic slurs thrown around, and uh, David uh, was, you know, beaten unconscious, 
significant injuries that uh, that uh, David suffered as a result of this. Um, I bring this, you know, this is, I mean, that's that's awful. It, it is good that the mayor has called this a terrible incident. It's good that the Toronto Police Service is taking it seriously with the hate crimes unit now investigating. But one of the things that emerged is within about a day or so, maybe not even a day, um, it became apparent that apparently the Ottawa Red Blacks uh, football team, their um, line defenseman, Chris Larson, was identified as potentially being one of these individuals. And out of the Ottawa Red Blacks took the immediate step of suspending um, Chris Larson whilst they figure out what's going on. The Canadian Football League, CFL, also issued a statement saying, essentially, look over here at the Red Black statement. You know, yeah. earlier, Sebastian, you were saying about, you know, are these organizations, these leagues taking it seriously or, or is it just uh, rainbow washing? You know, when we see an incident about this, you know, does that show, demonstrate maybe to yourselves where Canadian sport is today? You know, the organizations seem to be trying to get the paperwork right, like Sebastian said, but maybe that culture in the locker room hasn't quite caught up with it. I'm kind of wondering what your takes are on on, on how this recent inf- incident uh, uh, feeds into the conversation. Um, well, I don't pretend to know what goes on in locker rooms of the CFL or any major sports, really, but... Um, how many CF? How many? How many CFL players are out gay men? How many? Zero. There are not. And so, okay, maybe there are a few who are gay, and maybe their teammates know, but they don't want to come out publicly. But what I've also noticed when I was doing the research of this documentary is that young gay athletes just quit because it's too hard. They don't make it up to the level of the CFL. They're weeded out by, you know, bullying or just feeling horrible about themselves because of all the homophobic crap that's being said out there. So I applaud this, uh, the Red Blacks for issuing that statement, but uh, I don't know what else that means, you know? Mm. I mean, I think you kind of dropped a, a a clue as to what this could be earlier, where you know the 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 hockey player's life is all about hockey, mm. no? So the 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 corporate bodies behind it, they have a big picture view. They have a you know a twenty year plan view. You know they see the writing on the wall and they know that they they can't let this fly anymore, even if they don't care, just for cynical legal avoiding lawsuit reasons. You know, they, they need to make a more inclusive environment, if nothing else, to avoid that kind of rigmarole. So, I mean, it really does seem to be that, like, you, you've got the corporate bodies come first because they, they do have the big plan. I think some of the, the athletes, because you hear stories. I mean, uh, we've interviewed members from the Ottawa Wolves, who are a local rugby team. And uh, a lot of them have said that the, the teams are a lot more welcoming than they're, they're um, reputed to be quite often. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them don't come out because they're afraid of the fans. Mm-hmm. So it seems to be like there's this order of events that kind of needs to happen where first you need the institutional support, then your team support, although ideally mm-hmm. you have your team support first. Yeah. Like, I mean, support. when David Testo came out um, from the Montreal Impact Soccer League, soccer team, 
it was in 2011, so it was 10 years ago. Okay, so it's a while back, but it's not that long ago. And, you know, he was saying he, the players knew he was gay, but he hadn't come out publicly, like his teammates knew. Most of them were fine. Some of them though, like would not shower next to him or like there was some really bad stuff. Um, he talked about uh, not wanting to share a hotel room with him. Uh, he said that in his entire career, he always felt uncomfortable in the locker room. I mean, that's, think about how much time you would spend in a locker room, you know, like as, a, as an athlete, as a soccer player. It's just, uh, it just seemed like for him, it, it was, uh, the environment was not at all welcoming to him. Hmm. You know, I, I find this incredibly disappointing and, and, and heartbreaking because it's a disservice, obviously, to these, these LGBTQ plus, uh, you know, participants and, and athletes and sports people. But more than ever, it's a disservice to the game. If you're creating a, a, an environment that's toxic, you're not going to get all of the best players. Exactly. You know what I mean? How can you have, how can you have a, 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 an authentic competition if the culture is weeding out strong competitors? It's, it's, I think straight folks who are in sport listening to this should bear that in mind as well. You know, it impacts them because they can't play to the best of their ability and have the best team if not everyone can be a part of that. That's a very good point. Performance, um, Anastasia came out and then the next weekend she skated like the best, like she had wings on, she said. She skated her personal best of the weekend after coming out. Uh, Brock makes that point too, the hockey player, Brock McGillis, about, um, yeah, you, you know, if you're not if you're not going to support gays on your team for I don't know ethical reasons, then support them for sports reasons because mm. they're going to play better if you support them. You know, it's yeah. easy. Mark Tewksbury, mm. who I think you mentioned earlier, yeah, I I, I I know Mark. We he helped me with the research of my film, okay. and um, yeah, <laughs> yeah, when he he won that gold medal. Um, in Barcelona and swimming, I think, was it one or two that he won? I can't remember. But anyway, one at least, uh, there's that iconic, you know, ah, where he's screaming that like he won the medal and he said like, that was gay power, you know, because <laughs> yeah, he hadn't, uh, he had come out to, to some friends and family at that point. I think it was after the medal that he came out publicly. Mm. But that, that he was also interesting because he, you know, he said things are changing, it's good, but like, I mean, he came out a long time ago and it's not like there's been this stampede of athletes coming out of the closet. It's like drip, 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 not that many really. You know? hmm. Well, uh, do you have any other questions, uh, Seb? Uh, no. Uh... Well, I wanna thank you, Paul, so much for, uh, for um, joining us and, and everyone can go and check out the film. I think it is absolutely, uh, definitely worth viewing. Um, it's on the NFB National Film Board, so just nfb.ca, and uh, they can they can find the film there and and check it out. It's free, free. Just click and watch. <laughs> a lot of the, of uh, well, 
so long as it, it's like two years or something like that there's a timeline and after the timeline all that nft stuff usually comes free i think yeah uh i i don't know if there's an actual time for it kind of did festival circuit um okay. yeah it, it actually premiered at doxa here a documentary film festival in uh in Vancouver and then Calgary and then Montreal, Halifax. So, yeah, it was a fun run. <laughs> well, I want to thank you so much, Paul, for joining us to talk thank about you. uh, your incredible film and also the topic in, uh, in general. We blindsided you a little bit there with uh, David Gomez, but it was a new story for us as well. Um, just a final note on that. There is a GoFundMe that has been set up in less than a day and uh, they smashed their initial targets and they've raised the targets multiple times. They set a goal recently of 40,000. I'm looking at it right now and it's at 43,000. So it's good news to see that the community has come out to support, uh, to support uh, David Gomez. But hopefully this never should have happened to begin with. Go check out the film. And if you or your own little league wants any additional supports, go to sportinclusion.ca and they can hook you up with the resources necessary. That is all we have time for on today's show. Um, unfortunately, we've, we've run out of time. And uh, so we'll be playing out with uh, Game Face by Composite, a Canadian queer musician or band. I've been Luke Smith. And I've been Sebastian. And I'm Paul Dostomov. <laughs> <laughs> and thank you for listening. Bye.